0: Welcome to our experience ASCP's podcast. I am one of your hosts, Chad Wurz, alongside my partner Tom Hansel, and we're going to continue our journey through the origins and history of ASCP. And you know, we we emanate out of the DC area, and obviously, when we talk about presidents of the United States, we always talk about them in terms of their number, number forty-five or forty-four. We are really excited today to have Scott Carruthers, who is number twenty in ASCP's presidential history in our 53-year history. So, Tom, I'll let you uh, introduce Scott. Yeah, welcome, Scott.
1: I appreciate you joining us. We've known each other for, for several years, and I tell you, I've learned a lot from you over the years, but I'm really excited to get back to talking about the origins back in the 1980s and 90s and, and really when, when you were a part of ASCP and, and your leadership there. And So, we'll start off with Kind of asking you questions about the beginnings when it comes to long-term care pharmacy.
0: Great. Well, I'm looking forward to it. Thank you for inviting me. Absolutely. Why don't you tell us a little bit about just tell us a little bit about yourself and your in your history.
2: I'm an old guy. I've been around a long time. I'm still working, but I, I've had my own pharmacy. But I started in pharmacy. I was about 13, and I was delivering prescriptions on, on my bicycle in a beach town in in San Diego area and knew I wanted to be a pharmacist early on due to some mentors that I worked with some pharmacists. And then um, I actually uh, had a, a partnership in a pharmacy and a medical building. And, and I started to read a little bit about, you know, what was happening with Medicare and nursing homes. And I had a friend that was servicing some what he called rest homes. And I thought it was pretty interesting. and I. Decided that uh, this would be a, a new exciting era for pharmacists. So, I sold out to my partner and uh, started a, opened a closed door pharmacy in San Diego. One day I was reading, uh, I think it was Pharmacy Times or one of those magazines about this guy uh, Rick Berman that was uh, starting a organization for long term care pharmacists, and they were going to meet in Chicago. So uh, I decided I better find out what that was all about. So I I did attend the first several meetings, uh, yearly meetings of ASCP. I think there were 83 or 84 of us that met in Chicago that first year. And I met a lot of wonderful people. We spent probably the first couple of years flying around the country visiting each other. One of the most remarkable things I can say about ASCP was that we taught pharmacists how to be colleagues as opposed to competitors. Uh, we shared things, even though we may have been vying for the same long-term care facility, but we, we did share how we were doing things. And in some cases, we even shared taking calls. So I was in long-term care for a long time. Worked, as I said, uh, I sold my company to a larger company. And then over the years, worked for a couple of nursing home chains, uh, Beverly Manor, Beverly Enterprises was one, Care Enterprises was another, and then as things started to consolidate and it became a big business, it just wasn't as fun as it was in the very beginning, so I left long-term care, and just sort of semi-retired, but I worked at a Rite Aid and spent time with my kids and had a daughter that had a full ride of playing soccer at a major university, so I got to see all her games and Then one day a headhunter called me and uh, said, have you ever heard of the AIDS Healthcare Foundation? And I said, no. So I interviewed with them and I've been here ever since, almost going on 18 years. So I am the senior manager and I'm the chief pharmacy officer for the AIDS Healthcare Foundation. We're headquartered in Los Angeles, but we have clinics in 45 countries and 18 states. When I joined, uh, there were four pharmacies in our Uh, Legacy clinics in the Los Angeles area, we now have 62 pharmacies, two central refill centers that are fully automated, utilizing a lot of the concepts we developed in long-term care, adherence packaging, both strip packaging as well as uh, these punch cards, all automated in these days.
1: Let let me ask you, before before we dive deeper into AHF, and I definitely want to go there with you, I want to go back to that beginning time with ASCP in long-term care. And I appreciate sure. the comment that you made because Chad and I have both been in long-term care our entire careers. And and we, we've talked and admired the fact that long-term care pharmacy, like you said, seems to be more of a collaborative effort, if you will, and, and we've, we've helped each other over the years and continue to do that today. The, one of the purpose of this podcast is so we can continue bringing ideas and innovation to all of our long-term care friends. But you had a unique situation where you were at the very beginning of what long-term care is now defined as today. And Can you go back to, to the dispensing process before automation, back in the 70s, I know that unit dose blister was was, was kind of starting to come out, I'm thinking around late 70s, early 80s, but but you were the first person or one of the first people to ever start using multi-dose blister. So can you talk a little bit about that experience?
2: Sure. Well, as, as everyone knows, Rick Berman, the founder of ACP, um, actually had developed the punch card. And it was a big, thick cardboard thing. And, and we laid a piece of tin foil over one side and a piece of cellophane over the other and dimpled the aluminum foil so we could put the uh, single drug in there and then fold it over and stapled it shut. We had carts that were made out of plywood. So when you got those things full, the nurse couldn't push them down a carpeted hallway. <laughs> so Rick really invented that whole concept. And then Milton Murray Moskowitz, who were also members, started to develop a company of of making blisters and card stock that was much lighter and a little more reliable. So a lot of us started to adapt that. And and that really led, if you look at some of the packaging that, that big pharma puts out these days, I mean, even the birth control pill, when it went to a little calendar type pack, it was really as a result of of what Rick Berman started at ASCP. I had been doing multi-dose for a few residential care, what we call rest homes in those days, and vials. Uh, I would do seven days at a time, and uh, those types of facilities didn't have professionals handing out medicine. It was usually the owner that would put up a lot of souffle cups but all of the doses that a patient was supposed to have at a given time of day, breakfast, lunch, dinner, and bedtime were really the main passing times. So I started putting it in vials. I could, you know, seven-day supply at a time. And then Jack Mashbitz, who was also one of the early pioneers with ACP, had moved to the West Coast, and he started a, a company where he was manufacturing bubbles and Lidding material for the punch card. And so I worked with him. He and I were good friends. And he developed a larger bubble so I could start putting multi-dose into the punch card. And then we uh, took a little Atari game device and programmed it to create a label so that uh, the package was labeled correctly with everything in the bubble. And away we went. So I think I was one of the early founders, if you will, of using multi-dose. I had uh, some competitors uh, turn me into the board of pharmacy, and (laughs) so we appeared. At Uh, the time, I had some students, and we did some research and and talked with several manufacturers about how drugs vaporize, and and we found that putting multi-dose in a a bubble for a 30-day supply, there was no issue. Aspirin started to vaporize after about 18 weeks if it was in a package with if if vitamin e was in a package it would start to turn an aspirin or uh, any other tablet that had any kind of shellac sort of brown after about 22 weeks so uh, i had all that data and and lo and behold uh, the board of pharmacy in california did approve it after about eighteen months of mm. going back and forth. So, you know, what that's I think, kind of how we got started with the multi-dose, and and yeah. now we use it. Now we have a machine that does that instead <laughs> right. sort of that's right.
0: right. Well, what I think is interesting, and I think the you know one of the reasons we're doing this podcast is you know you you're an entrepreneur. I mean, it's very clear. You did things at the beginning of your career like this that really pushed the the industry forward and really created the industry where there wasn't one. And that's a big thing right now with a lot of young pharmacists is I want to be an entrepreneur. Teach me how to be an entrepreneur. I want to do these, you know, innovative things. And I think the mystique about that is, is the people that did it just did it. Like there wasn't teach me how to do it. It was, I've got a problem. I'm trying to solve it. You know, work cobbling together foil and cellophane and stapling. plywood and stapling. And, you know, we're, we're solving problems and we're, we're not thinking about, well, is it, what's the state board going to say? And, you know, you're just solving the problem. and And in that you're creating the future of pharmacy. And I think that I think that's what's appealing about these conversations is the next generation of pharmacists that are coming into healthcare. Healthcare is very cyclical. It goes through consolidation and independence. And I think we're at one of those you know, tipping points in long-term care where we're going to move back toward some innovators and entrepreneurs mm-hmm. because we've seen so much consolidation. But it's going to take those individuals that look at it the way you did, Scott, which was you know, I've got this problem I need to solve because this souffle cup routine at these group homes is not efficient. So what can I do and how can I take what exists and modify something to create opportunity? And I think that's really the, what's interesting is, you know, you were one of those pioneers. And the other thing that you said that I think is important is there was 83 or 84 of you at that first Chicago ASCP meeting. And it wasn't about Competition. It was about collaboration. It was about learning from each other, and ASCPs always had that sort of backdrop. The networking is what people say is so important, and I think that's really cool that that was your experience early on.
2: Well, it, it was a fact. I mean, it was such a breath of fresh air to meet people that I could truly call a colleague as opposed to a competitor, and and we did. We we literally shared everything. I mean. Rick Berman shared with all of us about you know the the punch card, and he even had a manufacturer to, that was making these cards, and that led to some other folks in the West Coast going to a modern metals company and, and building lighter weight carts. and and we did share. I mean, it was it was an exciting time, and I do think. Uh, There's still those opportunities. Uh, We just, as you said, we just did things. We financed all this out of our own pockets, really. We didn't have grants. We didn't have, we weren't getting paid what we should have gotten paid for consulting. And if you think about it, Medicare created the first opportunity for a pharmacist to get paid for a service as opposed to a bunch of pills in a bottle. The consultant pharmacist really, in my mind, was the first breakthrough where a pharmacist got paid for their knowledge as opposed to, you know, getting uh, making your living off of uh, dispensing.
0: Yeah, I love hearing you say that because uh, you're 100 percent right. And it's never perfect. It's never the way you want it. Like everybody clamors for provider status. And, you know, we, we argue about being challenged by pharmacy benefit managers and how people are holding us under their thumb. But at some point you have to take the initiative and just go do it. And to your point, you're never going to feel like I'm getting paid what I should be getting paid, but you keep fighting. And over time, some of those things come to fruition but i love Absolutely. what you say about consulting because it's it's what makes it appealing right now for a lot of pharmacists that are disenchanted by you know the retail pharmacy world you know working in the the big box stores is that there is this place you can go work where you go into a nursing home or an assisted living and you work with patients and you work with doctors and nurses on the the professional management side of their clinical piece of their medications. There's still that component, and it's still very important that someone can get compliance packaging and address some of their challenges with adherence and some of those issues. But it's equally, if not more important, to have those conversations around, how do you take these, and what's safe, and should I be taking these? And we are the only sort of pharmacist that's kind of codified to have a role in skilled nursing for that.
1: Now, Scott, take me back to when you decided to become president at ASCP. Kind of, if you can recall, a couple big advocacy issues or or fights that you guys were were undertaking that that ended up coming into fruition today. Do you do you remember any of those specifically?
2: Well, I can, and and as I said, I was one of the first in the first group that met with in Chicago, and I think we met the first three years in Chicago and then started to move around but there was a time that I actually resigned and and I resigned for the fact that I felt that uh, we were relying too much on manufacturers and I was doing a lot of speaking and uh, in California we had worked with the California pharmacists association and and developed the academy of long-term care uh, we didn't have enough folks or finances to develop a uh, a branch, a state chapter of ASCP at the time. So we were able to convince uh, the powers that be at the California Pharmacists Association to develop a, an academy. And I was doing a lot of speaking at, you know, meetings and so on and so forth. And, and I remember distinctly, I was talking about a particular drug at the time, and uh, that really it wasn't demonstrating that it had uh, the effects that was claimed. And then at a ASCP meeting, a couple of the people from that manufacturing company approached me and, and started to say, you know, why did I talk about the drug that way and how but how much they were supporting ASCP. And uh, I just wrote a letter to the board of directors and I resigned. <laughs> wow. So in anger, quite honestly, and then later, a couple of years later, I, I came back into the fold and... It was just, as I said, the camaraderie and the things that I felt we were doing as healthcare professionals in improving patient safety, reducing the cost. There were a lot of studies by then that showed that the consultant pharmacist was really reducing the number of medications patients were taking. The outcomes were improving for elderly people. They just weren't uh, being warehoused in, in nursing homes any longer to, to die and I, th- I felt the pharmacist really had a huge part of that and and it was significant and so uh, I just you know ran for office and became one of the board members and anyway I, I did earn the uh, George Archambault award during all that that time and, and so a couple of folks thought you know maybe I should run for president and I did and was elected and, and uh, I don't know what the structure is now, but you became president elect and then president and then chairman of the board. So it's really a three year commitment and Still that it was way. the time of my life. Again, I had a chance to go out and meet people and, and uh, talk to pharmacists that, you know, were in long term care, but weren't necessarily ASCP members and just explain to them how much you will learn. and, and People ask me, you know, why do you give away your secrets? And I said, well, look, you go to an ASCP annual convention, and if you're a speaker, and let's say there's 100 people in the room, I says, I can tell them what I'm doing, and they get one idea from me. Before that meeting's over, I will talk to those 100 people, and I'll get 100 ideas for the one that I gave away. I said, you know, it doesn't, the odds aren't, any better than that. But that's been the nature of ASCP and and really I think it it, it showed the world that, that you can be colleagues, you can still run a business and, and be competitive, but everyone benefits by sharing and and helping move the needle forward in terms of outcomes it is about patience in the end. And Whatever we can do as a health and it just I think has has cemented the fact that pharmacists really are healthcare professionals, not just technicians putting pills in a bottle. Absolutely. So
1: I know that you joined forces with AIDS Health Foundation and they started back in nineteen eighty-seven. Tell our listeners a little bit more about AIDS Health Foundation mission what you all do outside of just pharmacy. I know it's clinics and even, I believe, clothing stores and and a few other things, but give me the overall kind of mission there before we dive into the the pharmacy part of it.
2: Sure, well, our mission statement is that we provide cutting-edge medicine and advocacy regardless of ability to pay. That doesn't mean they don't have to pay, but they don't leave our pharmacy without their medicine, period. We are a not-for-profit, We're a worldwide organization, and as a senior manager, I get to dabble in all of that. And then as the chief pharmacy officer, obviously, we operate our pharmacies. And in today's world, and this really applies to long-term care in every phase of pharmacy, but the opportunities for young pharmacists now, day by day, state by state, pharmacists are getting more and more prescriptive authority. Almost every state now, a pharmacist can administer any kind of a drug that they have a valid prescription for. So that's injectables, that's eye drops, that's ointments. In my era, you couldn't touch a patient. Now we can do hands-on. I cringe at news articles where all you see about a pharmacy is the Abbott counting pill and somebody counting pills. I don't allow that at AHF. If they're going to take pictures of us, I want the pharmacist sitting down, maybe even with a stethoscope, counseling a patient. I don't want to pay pharmacists to count pills. We have robots now. So pharmacists with prescriptive authority can and with collaborative practice agreements, which are now becoming very commonplace in every state. The long-term care pharmacists with a collaborative practice agreement can make those changes. They can order labs. They can they can actually prescribe in, in appropriate settings. So the opportunities, you just have to go. And as you said, you just have to go do what? You know, I started my long-term care pharmacy as a closed-door pharmacy, and I got inspected every week by the <laughs> board of pharmacy because I didn't have my hours on the board, on the door, and I didn't have a sign. So I finally put up a sign, Medic Pharmaceutical Services. I didn't use the word pharmacy, and I painted on my door my hours were prescriptions filled by appointment only from eleven a.m. to one p.m. And they had to leave me alone because I met the law. But you just have to do these things. That's and now with, with the opportunity to prescribe and and truly monitor a patient outcome. With the drug therapy, I'm not saying that we diagnose. That's somebody else's responsibility. But we are the drug experts, yeah. and the opportunities are just starting to unfold, in my opinion.
0: Yeah, I, I, there's an old saying: you either ask for permission or beg for forgiveness. And I think pharmacists like you are are the ones that have led the way because you've you've done what you've needed to do. And then if you've gotten any pushback, you just look kind of beg for forgiveness. Oh, I, you know. I've got my sign now. I, I've got my hours on here now. But what I'm doing is improving the lives of people that I'm taking care of. And it may not comply with the current law or regulation or standard, but that's because you're behind me and, not, and catching up, not because I'm doing anything wrong. And I think that's important. That's an important lesson for all pharmacists.
1: Chad, where are we at as far as an industry when it comes to pharmacy and provider status?
0: Yeah, I mean, provider status, I graduated in late... 1990s. We talked about it in pharmacy school then. We're talking about it today. It's gone through a number of iterations from, you know, broad provider status to rural health and underserved populations to what we have now in a a vaccination, test, treat, vaccinate sort of bill before Congress. Part of it is getting identified in the Social Security Act as a bona fide provider that can bill Medicare. All those bills do that. Obviously, the vaccine bill and the test treat bill represents a recognition of how well pharmacists performed. And to to Scott's point, during the pandemic, especially in the early stages of the pandemic, we would run around here and tell people we're not here to tell pharmacists what they should be doing. We're here to tell the government that they need to change some regulations because pharmacists are are doing it. Mm -hmm. There's no should I do this when the building's on fire? There's just put the fire out. So I think there's going to be a good chance for us to get the designation of provider through this vaccination piece of legislation. But that's just the beginning. It's almost like in the Shawshank Redemption when the main character is asking for books for the correctional library. And he writes a letter every week and it takes three years. And he finally gets them And his statement is, is the, the letter from the state is here's some books, stop writing us letters. And he says, well, I'm going to start writing two letters a week now <laughs> to get books. So it's just a beginning. And again, going back to some of the things Scott said, which are just, you know, you can really feel how passionate you are for the profession of pharmacy. And you can really see it when somebody that's done it over a career like you have Just as as contemporary a pharmacist is today as you were an innovative pharmacist in the beginning of your career, it really speaks to the kind of, of person you are and the kind of pharmacist you are. But that's what pharmacists need to hear. We're already out there doing it. There are states with collaborative practice. There are people working in the AIDS community that are prescribing medications, getting people treatments, all as pharmacists. So there's examples everywhere of doing it. We just need to keep doing it. And eventually... The government's reaction is going to be well they're doing it so we have to provide a mechanism for it we have to either protect them because they're doing it or provide a mechanism because they're doing it it's not about oh now that we have this we can go do it and i think that's what we see from a provider perspective absolutely let me ask you a quick question just on the on the, sure. the aids foundation work and, and I, I met you today i certainly know of you as a, a member of ascp and a past president but one of the first things that I experienced when I took this role five years ago was I got to see George Bush speak, and he was speaking on the anniversary of Medicare Part D, which provided you know medications to the older adults, Medicare beneficiaries. But the speech that he gave was about his work in AIDS and how, over in Africa, they, they made concerted efforts to get medications to people that needed them in Africa, and how it really tied to making sure that kids grew up with parents. Like that struck me because he was talking about, you know, some of the kids in in Africa that grow up and their mom, dad get AIDS, they die of AIDS. They don't grow up with parents. And if they don't grow up with parents, they end up in camps where they become potentially terrorists or other bad actors. And if we can get medications to people that have AIDS in in Africa and we can get moms treated and dads treated, then they'll grow up with parents and that will put them on a whole different path. And it really just changed the perspective of the way you think of of doing work and and getting medications and taking care of people. Mm-hmm. And I just wonder if that had any if you had any influence around that or if that's how you look at it or or the the kinds of stories that you see about making sure people have access to these life-saving medications. I mean, I'm a I'm from the generation of of Magic Johnson and experiencing him having AIDS and thinking that well, he's going to die in a few years because there's nothing we can do about this to having lived, you know, the better part of my life having him be not only not he didn't die, but he's been Barely active detectable. and Detect- effectively cured. Mm-hmm. So just just some comments on that because you've lived this career
2: well we have 1.8 million active patients in care about a hundred thousand of those are here in the u.s so most of our patient population are in the african countries the third world countries uh, we even have 20 clinics in uh, china if you can believe it uh, we're in uh, some parts of russia ukraine estonia we were the first responders to the ebola breakout in Sierra Leone. We lost two doctors and a nurse there. We're very active in those countries. We provide all the care and the medication at no cost. Wow. Insurance doesn't exist in those countries. So we, we go in uh, at the invitation of a country. It takes sometimes a while. We're, as I said earlier, we're in 45 countries. We have over 400 clinics. We hire local people and train them. And again, we provide all the medications. The thing that we found is as we started to treat people for HIV, they were starting to die from TB, malaria, and other things. So we really are, we have to focus on on the entire patient and we treat all of the infectious diseases and have become more of a public health company as opposed to just an AIDS company. We did start in Los Angeles with two fellows who, wanted to do something for the friends that were dying of AIDS. People wouldn't touch them. They were dying in the hallway of county hospitals. So they turned their home into a hospice so their friends would have some peace and dignity and death. And we've grown from that, and that's 36 years ago, so into the largest HIV provider in the world. But as I said, we We really treat the entire patient. Our patients live longer now. As long as they stay on medication and they're undetectable, they can't spread the disease. So the key is to get them in care, find those that don't know they're they're positive, link them into care, and then keep them into care. Mm -hmm. And that's where the pharmacy plays the biggest role is keeping people in care. So we contact the patient, we hold their hands, we chase them down to keep them in care. Mm I mean, we, we do provide a lot of the financing for our company. My budget this year is a little over $2 billion. And so we are an important S in terms of keeping 1.8 million people in care from a financial perspective, but we also are clinically involved with our providers and, and our patients and, and Certainly. keeping them in care. That is a very noble
1: cause. And, and I love the fact that most of what you do is is more of a foundational thought process and providing the free medications to those underserved communities throughout the world. And it's certainly amazing what you guys have been able to accomplish there, which you've all been able to accomplish. You mentioned technology a couple of times. I've had the real luxury of being able to to go to both of your hub pharmacies in Fort Lauderdale and and there in Gardena, California, and been able to see that technology I know that's all compliance adherence-based thought process. You dispense medications and compliance packaging from your, probably a little better than the early days, the multi-dose dispensing to to now. But talk a little bit about how your focus and your drive is to stay the most innovative in in using technology so you can be able to provide this.
2: Well, that's the point is that you know, one, the healthcare system has taken away the ability of pharmacists to make money off of the drug product. So we have to focus on how can we do the dispensing safely and economically, as opposed to the way we've done it traditionally. And so automation has certainly improved the safety and certainly has reduced the cost. It costs us about half to fill a prescription in our two automated refill centers as it does at the home pharmacy. So that's a significant difference. But when we started to automate, we told our teams, you know, they worried about, oh, I'm gonna lose my job. You're gonna replace me with a robot. And I said, no, we're not. What we're gonna do is take the routine repetitive task out of your pharmacy so that you can spend time with the patient. So you can hold their hand, you can ask them, what are the other problems that they're faced in, in getting their meds? Is it, is it because they don't have transportation? Is it because they don't have the money? How's their diet? How's that impacting their living? Uh, what are their living conditions? What are the things we can do to help maintain your anonymity if that's a big problem? And that's what we focus on. And, and that's what we've done with automation is that we take the repetitive, routine tasks out of the pharmacy so that the entire team, our technicians, many of our technicians now are becoming phlebotomists so that Mm -hmm. if the clinic is understaffed, we can float a a technician over to help draw blood or if the clinic uh, is closed for one reason or another, they can still come into the pharmacy and get their blood drawn. It's convenience. It's making life easier for the patient to receive care and to stay into care. So that's what automation has done for us. And we're we're expanding both uh, the Gardena site and the Fort Lauderdale site. So that we're going to double the capacity in both locations. I have 11 pharmacies on the drawing board right now. So by the end of the year, we'll have 11 more locations. Wow. And so, you know, I, I expect by the time I'm done uh, and I'm going out feet first, I'm having too much fun. And I have to say a lot of that, is based on my experience in long term care and ASCP. I've carried over many of the things I learned there and certainly the collaboration and the the fellowship and and the importance of what pharmacists can do and and what pioneering and just plowing ahead and, and getting it done really can do both for me as an individual and for the profession, but most importantly, what it can do for the patient. So I, I appreciate my my years at ASCP. I miss a lot of that, but on the other hand, I, I I've been able to use uh, much of what I learned at ASCP and during my years in long term care and applying it to today. So I'm I'm thankful for that.
0: Well, I mean, Scott, you you have a superpower, and it's pharmacy, and you've used it. To just have a profound impact on people all over the world and we're happy that you shared yourself with ASCP at the beginning of our organization and and of long-term care pharmacy and just just proud of what you've accomplished and um, just amazing work.
2: Well, thank you. I'm having fun. I learn things every single day. I'm 85. So uh, if I wasn't having fun and if I wasn't learning things, uh, I, I would retire, but I can't. There's still a lot of work to do. The opportunities are still there. And and I can help the, the new students and, and the younger pharmacists kind of go down that same path and realize that, you know, I, what I learned on the Board of Pharmacy was three words shall should and silence if it says shall that's you got to do it if it says should well that might be kind of like a standard but if it's silent go for it that's awesome i love and, it
0: yeah, um, I
1: love that. the three s's of the and, pharmacy huh?
0: that's right <laughs>
2: that, and that's what you have to do you yep, got to yeah. take risk yeah risk and everything
1: well it I agree completely and it's, and it's risk and and staying on the cutting edge, but it's also compassion. You, you, you brought this up, but I'm going to actually quote you. You did an interview a while back and, and I, and I stole this quote here from you and I'm going to read it back to you if you don't mind. But it says, this is, this is you talking during the interview. It says, you've got to have compassion above all. Compassion will be the driving force in the work that you do. You must also have patience. And understand that the client's needs must come first if you put patient needs first you'll be able to have a tangible impact on the clients that you serve and i i so appreciate that 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 quote it tells me right there that scott caruthers is is about the patient first and foremost and you've lived a legacy of being on the cutting edge and pushing the envelope but I think it's all pointing back to the fact that you have compassion for the people that you serve. And, and that right there is, a, is an amazing statement. And I appreciate your dedication to your patients and to, to the
2: industry. Well, thank you. I've had a lot of help. And uh, you, you don't do these things by yourself. So uh, I've been blessed and, and I've been given some freedom here at AHF. And as I said, I, I really learned a lot from my colleagues at ASCP over the years and you just keep moving forward and and take what you learn and apply it and and don't be afraid to make mistakes don't be afraid to, of change and uh, go from there
0: that's awesome well Scott I want to thank you for being here today being generous with your time sharing yourself with us and all the audience and members that'll take this podcast and and these words and and apply it to their work and their careers so we certainly appreciate it and keep having fun
2: well thank you and uh, i appreciate you uh for inviting me and uh, i've enjoyed this so just for everyone on the on the call here if uh, if you're in the los angeles area please stop by uh, i'm still sharing uh, because i'm going to learn more from you than you'll learn from me so we always invite uh, guests we had sheila arquette from the uh, the National Association of Specialty Pharmacy out a couple of years ago and did a tour with her to some of our pharmacies and our central refill operations. So we're always open and, and willing to show you how we do things. That's awesome.
0: Well, thank you so much.
2: Thank you,
1: my friend. Take care of yourself.
0: All right. Well, that's our experience for this week. We'll be back next week with another Drop Podcast. Thanks for listening and we'll see you next time.